Welcome to Unless, Stories from Everyday Earthsavers, a podcast where I interview ordinary people, people just like you who through passion, inspiration, or straight-up determination have found a way to direct the future of our environment toward a more perfect outcome. Through their words, I hope to inspire you, the listener, to learn, to grow, or to make a change no matter how small. Your actions have the power to shape our future, because in the great words of Dr. Seuss, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now on to today's story. Welcome to episode two of Unless. On today's show, we have Sonny Nelson, curator of birds at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, Illinois. We talk about how she got started in her line of work, her work with the Bali Mina, and her interest in combating the exotic pet trade through education. We also discuss one small simple step you can take to ensure you don't accidentally contribute to the decline of exotic species. So without further ado, I welcome Sunny. All right, so um, the whole purpose of the interview is to talk to people who are doing things in their own personal life, in their busy, busy life, and to hear the story of people who are trying to make a difference in the world through either environmental action, environmental stewardship, environmental conservation, environmental education. And uh, so I was wondering, in in what regard do you contribute to improving uh, the future of our planet? Oh, man, I feel like that's a really heavy question. Um... Well, I think through my profession, I am the curator of birds at an AZA zoo. And so through that, I've just been involved with different conservation programs in the field. And I started my career working with a little small white bird called the Ballymina. And at the time when I started, there were only an estimated six birds left in the wild. And that was just mind-boggling to me and shocking. So I was always just interested in their story and how did it come to pass that there could only be six individuals left of a species on the planet. Um, and so through just my career and working, I got more involved with ballet minor conservation and all the things that have been going on in that part of the world and come to find out there was lots of other birds that are kind of in the same predicament and many other species that the ballet minas are in and that they are facing challenges with survival from habitat loss to pet trade issues, and through all that, I've gotten involved more and more in Asian songbird conservation and kind of just raising awareness of the issues that are facing Asian songbirds and the wild. And that kind of ties into the pet trade issues and the illegal wildlife trade. And so I think the majority of my work and things that I like to talk about with people about my job and then just in general is being aware of illegal wildlife trade and trafficking and knowing where the animals that you're either purchasing or taking a picture with during your travels, how those animals are obtained and whether or not they actually came from a sustainable source. And more times than not, the answer is no, unfortunately. So I like to talk about the Valley Mina and talk about um how this trade is impacting not just the ballet mina, but other species in the wild and things that you can do to kind of not be a part of that process. So how would a normal person, uh, somebody that isn't educated like you are in, in birds, how would they go about finding out if a, like they're walking around the streets in, in South yeah. Florida, Miami, or Mexico, and somebody puts a parrot on their shoulder and says, hey, 10 bucks, yeah. I'll, I'll get a picture. How do, how do they know? How can they find out if that bird is is a part of an yeah. illegal pet trade or if that's a legitimate animal that's been traded as a, as yeah. a normal pet through legal means? Right. Yeah, that's one of the hard questions to ask, right? So you see the animal and you're like, that's really cute. 
and you want your picture with it. And I'm not really certain that we can know for sure 100% whether or not that animal was obtained legally, if it came from a, you know, if it's the offspring of an individual that was obtained illegally or illegally. But what we can do is think about the repercussions of when we present those images. So you've taken that picture and you post it on Facebook and somebody else is like, oh, that's amazing. I want to do the same thing. And then that continues the whole cycle. So I think if we're looking at this from what can I do at home when you're traveling abroad, or even if it's something that's happening at a local fair regionally, you can just refrain from doing that until you find out enough information. Or if you're looking to buy an animal or you see something that's for sale in a mall or a market somewhere that's not very usual, so not your dog or your cats or your bunnies, for example, it's a primate. Yeah, like, don't buy it. Don't engage in and that because you don't want to be part of that process. So you're saying you're saying err on the side of caution if it's a, not a normal dog or cat or anything. If you're not educated about it, just just err on the side of caution and, and walk away for the time being. Educate yourself and then maybe return if you find out. Hey, you know this is a, this is a common species and, and people do have it as pets. I think so. I think that that's our best bet. And I think kind of maybe thinking about why we have why we're interested in having something or taking pictures with something or trying to own something that's not a typical pet species is something that would be interesting to research and find out more about. But we know that through social media, when these pictures get posted of people with a parrot on their shoulder or this really cute primate that's sitting, uh, that's got a diaper on and sitting on my shoulder at the beach, that more and more people will see that. And then more and more people will think that that's acceptable. And unfortunately, it's not acceptable. So I think we have the responsibility of in this day and age where things get, where information gets shared so rapidly that we're all taking part in realizing our our part, even if we just don't post something that we've seen like that, the cute laughing pygmy loris or slow loris or the cute Asian small clawed otter that's swimming in somebody's bathtub. Just don't share those images because then hopefully it will not go on to the next person who might think, oh, that's really cute. I want an Asian small clawed otter to swim in my bathtub, so I'll just go online and buy it. Yeah, you know, I I didn't even really think about that because I'll be honest with you, uh, somebody, I I feel that I'm relatively educated as far as that's concerned and through Facebook and and Instagram and Snapchat, I I know that I have personally shared some of those viral videos and you see even like the big media companies, you know, like BuzzFeeds and and all those those things, they, they share them because they get the clicks and for sure yeah you just don't really think about how that may impact the next person or just that species right so you see this little loris and everybody sees it and they're like that is so cute he's got his arms up in the air and like you said the average person doesn't know that's a defense mechanism and that animal is in distress so you know we try to see things that we want to see and things that are familiar with us to us but that's not necessarily what's going on and we don't know how those animals are obtained even though you know you see it from somebody's house and it seems really cute you don't know the backstory and how many other animals were maybe killed or died in the process of getting that one animal i've traveled in um, southeast asia and i've seen the whole process happen where they've got civets or other things in cages and they just wind up removing their canines because if they're trying to sell them as a pet then they're more likely to be sold if they're not a danger and doing the air quotes to the potential buyer. But that's just a horrific process, obviously. So yeah, just really being aware and and thinking about the supply chain and how that comes about. So you have this really cute baby animal, but where are its parents? 
<laughs> it's likely the parents the parents are deceased. And what was that process? And all the other animals, if you think about the parrot trade, for example, these birds are stuffed in hair rollers and plastic soda bottles in order to be transported to their destination. But in the process, a lot of animals wind up dying. So of maybe the 30 that are being confiscated or the 30 that are being smuggled to their destination, maybe one or two will survive. That's mm-hmm. pretty terrible. Yeah, it's definitely. And not only that, but you have, if, if you don't do your due diligence, you also have people that can't take care of these these animals with special needs. I, I was just down in Florida uh, at mm-hmm. uh, a couple of like little sanctuary, little mini zoos, and uh, yep. they have cage after cage after cage of parrots and cockatoos who are just, what, what is it called, where they go through the stress and they just start ripping their yep. own feathers out and mites right. and because the, these parrots have bonded with, with, a, with an owner and that's the only th- person that they've ever known and this person is just not equipped to have this animal for 30 40 50 years because a lot of these these birds they they live long don't they yep yeah exactly and that's another really good point Patrick that you bring up is you know after the novelty wears off he's got this oh I got a tiger it's so cool as a kitten but it's going to grow up to be a 350 pound animal do you have the facilities to be able to take care of that animal or even you know it's really cute as an infant but it's hair changes over time. And so, as you said, you wind up seeing some of these animals that wind up in these other facilities later because they're not able to be taken care of properly. And so, like you said, you go to these sanctuaries and you'll see all of these birds that at one point were in somebody's home, but for whatever reason are now needing a new home. And so that's another challenge and something to be aware of. So not only do I want to know about what you are doing to try to, quote unquote, make the world a better place and improve the environment for our children, our children, children and hopefully into perpetuity but how did you get to where you are in your mindset uh, in protecting these animals from from the pet trade you said earlier that that the bali mina was was the bird that inspired you to take action yeah i think it was just a learning process honestly like when i first became aware of bali minas and hearing there's six left in the world well, the question is well why is that how many were there in the beginning and why are there only six and then you know, starting to learn these stories about why uh, pet trade and songbird trade is important in different parts of the world, and then starting to hear about how that process happens, that that just got me more interested in, well, my response to when I would see things like, oh, that's a really beautiful bird, like, I want to have that, like, trying to delve into understanding, like, well, why is it that I felt like I liked it, and I liked looking at it, and then the next jump to and my thought process was well I want it and then trying to figure that out like oh like it's probably how a lot of these animals and a lot of these species wind up in the pet trade because somebody somewhere was like oh I love that I want it yeah and I felt that way I felt that way as well and and, you know I I feel it kind of takes a lot of slowing down Mm self-reflection which is you know as an educator that's what ideally we want our students to do is to stop and and think about why why am I thinking that way why do I believe this thing what is going on I can see that my consequences are negative but where's the disconnect what's going on so you said that you first learned about the Bali Mina when you you started working is it that at your current job or was it at a previous zoo or no it was a previous zoo is when I was first out of college, I got my first job as a zookeeper in the bird department, and it was one of the exhibits that I was taking care of, taking care of at the time, and there were Bally Minas. It's this beautiful white bird, and at this particular individual could mimic 
the voices of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, valley miners are known as other uh, starling species are to be able to imitate or mimic things. And so this bird would say, good morning and hello. And so that in and of itself was like, this is crazy. Like going to take care of this animal that's saying hello to me. So I think that that's probably what grabbed my attention. That was definitely an, an animal that looked nothing like me that I'd never interacted with before to say hello was was like, what? Like, how is this possible? Um, so, yeah, I think from there and just being in the in the field that I was in and trying to understand animal behavior so that I could mm. take care of them the best way that I could was probably on the impetus for me to kind of just start asking the question, why? And why am I doing this? And why are zoos relevant? And what can I share? It's a story of their six birds left in the wild across the planet, like what can somebody do here that's going to help the Bally Mino? There's got to be some other kind of story that we can tell that I can say, you know, this is similar to this species that's here to help people kind of make appropriate decisions or think mm-hmm. about their behavior and and hopefully maybe do things that would protect things in their backyard or make positive changes for the environment, I think. How did you uh, start on your path to become the zookeeper in the first place? Right. Um, I had a cat growing up. (laughs) That was it. I grew up in New York City, and there's not a lot of wildlife that I would see. So my cat was pretty awesome to me. And then I always loved wolves. So when I was in high school, I remember I was, like, trying to figure out, like, what schools I was going to apply to. So I thought I was either going to go work on Wall Street, because, again, I grew up in New York City, or I was going to go try to figure out how to work with wolves. And I decided, well, wolves is much better, and Wall Street will just be, like, a backup plan. I don't know what I was thinking. I was, like, 16, so, you know, you think the world is yours. So, yeah, I just then, since I decided animals were going to be my path, I just took classes in school, and then I wound up meeting somebody who worked at New Atlanta, and I was able to get an internship, and I volunteered. And from there, I just kind of fell in love with the idea. I, I just liked learning about animal behavior and the fact that I'd be able to do it in an environment where I would get to work with so many different species was great for me. Constantly an, an opportunity to be learning about the guys that I was taking care of taking care of and then also what their stories were mm-hmm. about their uh, counterparts in the wild. Yeah. So that was basically how I got started. Yeah, there's kind of that balance. You want to you wanna anthropomorphize these animals a little bit to get people to understand their plights, to, to, to kind of sympathize with them. But you don't want to do too much because you don't want them to be, right. you don't want people to say, oh, they're so cute. I, want, I really want to hug and squeeze one. And Yeah, and that winds up being pretty tough to figure out what that, or at least it is in my opinion, to figure out what that right balance is. Because I could say the scientific name of this individual is this species and like there's no connection there. But I think when we're talking about different stories that people hear about these interactions and also the things that they're dealing with in the wild. I think that there's a way for us to tell those stories and make those connections so that people might want to make a change and and help animals in their backyard and on the other side of the world or things that they can do to make a difference. So recycling or, you know, whatever it's going to be, not using bottled water, those things. Right. That's also kind of a, not just the animals and the, and the stories on that, but there's the stories of the people that are doing the work as well. You kind of get that stereotype that we're all just sitting around pouring (laughs) over botany books and kind of the weird people that are out in the the forest all day, hugging trees and stuff. And so I, I think our story is also important. We have to live in the society just like everybody else, and we have those wants and those needs. And, you know, it's hard. It's it's challenging. Yeah, it really is. And I think one of the things that I feel like kind of keeps me balanced is knowing that 
we can all do something. Like, I don't have to do it all. I'm not going to save the Valley Minor, but, like, there might be some things that I can do along the way to make it a little bit better for the next generation and for my kids. And so if we all kind of take, this is just what I think. <laughs> no, <laughs> we it's, all kind it's of what this is about. small steps that we can make a difference and make things better for the next generation and for what we're doing right now. Because I think we all know that the alternative is pretty bleak if <laughs> we don't make changes and my kids are getting to the point where they're old enough to recognize what's happening and kind of like what my job is and what I'm doing and so I think that also makes me think about those messages that weren't given and the things that we're telling ourselves and how we're approaching those things so an example is we were watching television and there was this commercial about something that was disposable and my kids were like why would you throw that away why would you not just use a rag or something and like they're getting it mm, <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Yeah, like we don't need to constantly making these things that are so disposable. And so I think they're also relating that to what I'm doing. And right. sometimes can be challenging to balance what we're trying to do with you know just living day to day. We're human. Yes, we're wanting to change the world, and we also along the way, like you said, have to live in this society and can do little things here and there. So I have my re- my reusable grocery bag, but. I still have some plastic snack bags in my drawers. No, I think it, I think it's important to know that you know we're we're human just like everybody else, and and because everybody else is human too, they can take these small actions like you were just saying. Right. If you improve yourself in mm-hmm. small increments every day, that can build up like a bank account. You know, one percent interest sure. every day. Oh, that's great! I love that concept for sure. It kind of takes the weight off of feeling like all or nothing, like either you're doing it and if you don't do it, you're a failure and then you just you know, either revert back to it or you give up or it's just too overwhelming. I think we talked about that, this sense of become overwhelmed with this like sense of guilt where it's like, I just can't do anything, so I might as well not do anything. Mm-hmm. So I like the concept of what you're saying, like just small steps over time can make a difference. Yeah, and that's that's what I want to do is is I don't want you get that pushback, that psychological pushback from people where you're you're telling them this is the way it has to be, and they think, well, I can't get there tomorrow, so I'm not going to do anything. Or right. you got that cognitive dissonance. I I can't do that. I can't just make all those changes right now. So you must be wrong because I'm going to make myself feel better. Right. Exactly. I mean, just like you in the Bali Mina, you didn't just say one day, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to work on, on educating people about the pet trade and I'm going to work on, on uh, making people aware of the plights of these animals. You started off learning about the Bali, Bali Mina and then learning about birds in general and then learning about how they're right. affected. You didn't just know exactly. one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes that we, we lose that story. You know, we hear from experts and things like that. We're like, oh my gosh, like that's the person like you see Jane Goodall and you're like oh no and she is but she did start from somewhere too right like she had to start at learning and just having this fascination and I think sometimes we wind up losing sight of that and having these conversations about like what my interests are and what your interests are can also help along the way too right I appreciate taking your time talk to you yeah if you uh if you need anything else, like, feel free to give me a call. This is awesome. I think it's, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I like talking about this stuff, so it's awesome. Yeah. Um, one more thing, too, before before we sign off. Um, since we were talking about, like, 1% changes and we were talking about how your interest in the pet trade, especially uh, associating to birds, if you could have one small step that anybody listening to this could, could take tomorrow that wouldn't be too overwhelming, what, what would you suggest that step to be? Um, 
that wouldn't be too overwhelming. Okay. So the next time you're thinking about adding a furry or feathery or scaly member to your family, just take time to do some research about the species and the care that goes into the species and where they come from. It's an exotic animal. Maybe think twice. Yeah, that's not that too. That's not too overwhelming at all. I mean, everybody's got uh, all of mankind's knowledge at the tip of their finger, or most people do at least at the tip of their finger right now. Just a quick Wikipedia search can 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 save can make a difference. Can save the environment. You know, can lower demand for some of these these animals and hopefully keep them in the wild rather than in stressed out existences in people's exactly. homes. All right. Well, exactly. thank you for taking your time out of your schedule once again, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Of course. Good luck with everything. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earth Savers. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and learned something new, or at least gained appreciation for somebody's story, because everybody has a story. Before you leave, I want you to know that I cannot continue without you, the listener, so I thank you so much. If you have any idea for a future show or ways to improve, please drop me an email at feedback at sciencescenes.com. Unless is going to be a twice-monthly show, but the first few episodes will be released at an accelerated pace. To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, make sure to leave a review or comment wherever you downloaded this episode. Positive feedback and constructive criticism can help this podcast to become a better version of itself. So, until next time, take some action to make this world a better place. Because without you, things won't get better. No, they will not. See you soon.